Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sira, and much more. وَعَدَ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مِنْكُمْ وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ لَيَسْتَخْلِفَنَّهُمْ فِي الْأَرْضِ كَمَا اسْتَخْلَفَ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ وَلَيُمَكِّنَنَّ لَهُمْ دِينَهُمُ الَّذِي ارْتَضَى لَهُمْ وَلَيُبَدِّلَنَّهُمْ مِنْ بَعْدِ خَوْفِهِمْ أَمْنًا يَعْبُدُونَنِي لَا يُشْرِكُونَ بِي شَيْئًا وَمَنْ كَفَرَ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ فَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْفَاسِقُونَ بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu, dear brothers and sisters. Uh, welcome to a show to review some of the key events in two, 2020. Before I do that, I can see in the comments that people are, are saying there's no audio. Hopefully there's audio now. Please, uh, can you let us know if you can hear us, inshallah? We're broadcasting fine. I'm assuming that you can hear us, mashallah. Okay, jazakallah khair. So one second, welcome to everybody who is joining uh, in this show. Uh, year of the virus, a look back at 2020, uh, some of the key events uh, that has taken place. So, brothers and sisters, welcome once again. And those who have joined us, uh, if you kindly share and invite your friends and family to join the discussion, alhamdulillah, we have a conf conf confirmation from Brother Hassan that we can hear you now. Alhamdulillah, good, you can hear us. Jazakallah khair for that. Uh, I think we had a slight technical problem, but alhamdulillah, we're ready to go. So before I introduce our uh, panel, just a reminder really as to why we are actually having uh, this show. Uh, this is not just a no normal, ordinary show just to look back at the news and just analyze it. Rather, as Muslims, we need to learn lessons from what's actually taken place uh, in the last year. As the Prophet wasallam, he advised the Muslims, uh, he said, لا يلدغ المؤمن من جحر واحد مرتين a believer is not stung from the same hole twice. Therefore, we will look at some of the major events and what lessons that we can learn. And moreover, year 2020 has really shown that the world is in desperate need of the guidance of Islam, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he revealed to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He subhanahu wa ta'ala said, هُوَ الَّذِي يُنَزِّلُ عَلَىٰ عَبْدِهِ آيَاتٍ بَيِّنَةٍ لِيُخْرِجَكُمْ مِنَ الظُّلُمَاتِ إِلَى النُورِ it is he who sends down upon his servant Muhammad وسلم, verses of clear evidence that he may bring you out from darkness into the light of Islam. And indeed, Allah is to you the kind and merciful. So we, we hope through this session to get our panelists 
to comment on how Islam looked at many of those issues, and those issues are still with us today, and they will continue in uh, into the next year, how we should view it from the Islamic viewpoint. So let me just introduce you to all our panelists. Really, they don't require any introduction, but uh, let me welcome uh, our panelists. So we have uh, Brother uh, Abdul Wahid, Dr. Abdul Wahid. Assalamu alaikum. How are you, Abdul Wahid? Abdul Wahid, are you able to hear us? Uh, I think Abdul Wahid is having some technical problem, but I'll just move to our second panelist, Jamaluddin. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. How are you doing, Jamaluddin? You okay, mashallah? Alhamdulillah, very good. Very good. How are you doing, brother? Alhamdulillah, very good, mashallah. Welcome to the panel. And let me introduce our uh, final uh, panelist, uh, Jamal Howard. Assalamu alaikum, Jamal. How are you doing? Alaikum salam, rahmatullah. Alhamdulillah, very good. How are you, uh, Fadad? Alhamdulillah, very good. Very good to see you all uh, under these uh, uh, trying circumstances. Let's try Abdul Wahid again. Assalamu alaikum, Abdul Wahid. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam. We managed to get you back on now, mashallah. So, uh, so Abdul Wahid, you are having some technical problems today. So. So for our listeners, yeah. if Abdul Wahid does uh, lose connectivity, just bear with us and he will try to rejoin. But alhamdulillah, we'll continue with the conversation with, uh, with Brother Jamal Uddin and Jamal also. So I'm, I am looking at uh, um, the Facebook uh, page. I'm looking at comments as well. So inshallah ta'ala, if, if you have any questions or any particular points you want to raise, I will be looking at that and, and posing it to our uh, panelists, inshallah ta'ala. So this year, of course, there's so many events uh, to be discussed, but uh, undoubtedly it's the year of COVID. Uh, COVID, uh, two, uh, COVID-19 has really dominated uh, the headlines throughout the year in, uh, around the entire world. Uh, and uh, really there's been much discussion uh, on the issue of COVID and it's still an ongoing pandemic um, uh, after almost a year. So uh, we have discussed this topic uh, at length uh, and many of the topics that we're going to be covering, we've discussed it at length in the past. So you may want to go to our website, uh, um, uh, uk, or our Facebook uh, channels or any of our social media channels for many of the discussions on these particular points. So uh, it's more of a summary, some of the main lessons that we can actually learn by just reflecting on what's actually happened in uh, 2020, really. So, um, so the format is uh, is that um, we've got uh, four topics, the, and the topics are we've got COVID, just looking back at uh, the whole issue around COVID, lessons learned, uh, following the issue of what's happening uh, in France uh, and and its relationship with Islam and Muslims. Uh, and then following that, uh, we'll be looking at the political situation in the U.S., especially uh, now the U.S. elections has concluded, uh, although very controversially. Uh, and what are, what's in what's the domestic situation in in the U.S. and international implication? And, and finally, we'll be looking at uh, uh, the Middle East uh, so-called peace process because we have seen. Uh, uh, much movement uh, on that track uh, last year uh, with uh, normalization by various Muslim countries. So these are the topics that we have uh, tonight, inshallah ta'ala. And of course, there are many other topics we could have raised, but uh, 
due to time, we sort of restrict ourselves to these core topics. Um, so without any further ado, uh, I'm going to really uh, go into the first topic, the topic of uh, uh, COVID, really. Um, we, you know, looking back at uh, so far what's happened with coronavirus uh, to now, uh, almost uh, 80 million uh, confirmed cases uh, in uh, 190 countries around the world with uh, more than 1.7 million deaths. And uh, uh, and we all, in one way or another, uh, every one of us has personally uh, experienced or had the effect of COVID on our lives. Um, so in terms of work, in terms of uh, education, health, uh, many uh, family members or friends that we are personally aware who have been inflicted with this uh, disease and many of our friends and family may have even passed away uh, from this so every every one of us has been touched by covid um so really to uh go into the topic you know i'll ask abdul wahid to kind of uh, uh, lead on this is that uh, abdul wahid in terms of you know almost a year uh, of covid um and you've been commenting on covid uh, throughout the year as well um, and not only that, you've, you're a doctor, you've been in the front line in terms of uh, dealing with uh, COVID cases. Um, so what are your, some of your personal reflections in terms of some of the lessons uh, learnt uh, or should be learnt um, from uh, this uh, worldwide uh, uh, pandemic, uh, which is, um, you know, for many people, this is extraordinary event uh, in our lifetime, really. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله صلاة والصلاة والسلام جزاك الله خير أبو يوسف I think the, the, the first lesson I'd say is to what you've said about the way that this has been something we've all experienced and, and on a human level there is the, the real fear and suffering in terms of loss of life and loved ones, uh, lost in some cases of jobs or livelihoods and businesses. And, and really, as one lesson I should learn, it is your sound is quite poor if you could refresh your browser uh, hopefully the sound will improve Uh, brothers and sisters, uh, bear with us uh, whilst we uh, deal with the sound box. Better? Um, much better. better. Yeah, yeah, much better. So, so I think if it happens so, again, you might just want to refresh your browser. So the the first lesson I think we learn, the first lesson we learn as Muslims is the test from Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala about khawf, fear, and loss of wealth and loss of life. And, and livelihood and 
and we remain patient and pleased with the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because that is uh, what we learn from Islam. O on a political level, what we've learned, I think, are really is about the West and capitalism. The West always had a reputation for competence, uh, has looked incompetent when it comes to dealing with this pandemic. And capitalism, once again, when tested, has been shown severely wanting and how vulnerable it leaves people with the huge numbers of people that very quickly have lost their jobs, the inequalities we've seen in the way this d disease affects people, uh, particularly in terms of their social status. And, and as a reflection of that is the fact that more people who are from minority communities tend to get affected by this. So capitalism has looked severely injured by uh, this, uh, this crisis, and it has been shown to be wanting. Uh, and one other thing that I think you and I will have noticed, Abu Yusuf, in living in Britain, is uh, the, the divergence of views within the capitalist framework. From uh, one end of the spectrum, the very libertarian view that wants people to be allowed to live their lives and no lockdowns and no... I think uh, we are having some connectivity problem uh, with uh, Abdul Wahid. So while Abdul Wahid sorts that out, inshallah ta'ala, I'm just going to bring on um, some of the other panelists. Um, Jamaluddin, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. So Jamaluddin, just, uh, uh, just to kind of pick up uh, from where Abdul Wahid uh, left off in terms of uh, some of the lessons, you know, uh, in your view, <coughs> that uh, we uh, that we should have learnt uh, uh, during this uh, pandemic, inshallah. Uh, any thoughts on that? So, I mean, I think I'll just follow on from the point that Abdul Wahid was making with regards to the competence of the Western governments. It was a real eye opener for us. Obviously, here in the UK, we've seen now ten months of this uh, crisis um, unfolding, and we've seen you know huge problems with the response of the government. Uh, we see a clear dis clear dichotomy or a clear challenge to the government in terms of looking at the livelihood uh, question, like keeping the economy going versus the issue of um, dealing with the risk to people's lives from the, 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 the virus. And they've not been able to manage and balance this responsibility in a, in a very effective way. Um, we saw that when kind of we really needed decisive action. There was a, there was a situation you needed a quick response um, to consider things like restricting people coming into the country because of the spread of the virus. Um, we saw a delayed reaction from the government on that part um, because of the fact they wanted to focus on the economy and that had its own economic impact, which was the virus spread. There weren't effective measures put in place to control, test and trace. Um, that's been an ongoing situation. And as a result of that, the, it's become much bigger, um, a much bigger problem for the country as a whole. And we've seen that replicated in the US and in many other countries. Um, so I think for us as Muslims, we, we've always taken for granted this idea of Western competence and our governments not being able to respond in the same way to these type of crises or big challenges. And the lesson here is that, you know, we have to be able to address these issues from the Islamic point of view. We know the rules of Islam sets on quarantine or how you deal with these issues. Um, we need to see a government really that emerges and can give the world an alternative to this sort of failed management. 
Um, I think another of the key themes I would perhaps draw on um, with regards to the specific response here in the UK has been around the whole issue of the what they what people are terming the chumocracy, which was the fact that so many politically connected um, lobbyists and other organisations have managed to really cash in on the crisis, whether it be through the PPE contracts, whether it be through other um, mechanisms that have been involved in the process, building apps, etc., which have had no kind of oversight, no need to respond on their effectiveness, no accountability. And I think this is, this. it's almost like a small glimpse of what capitalism would look like if truly unbridled. And people are not liking what they're seeing. From our point of view, I think it's an opportunity for Muslims to really start putting forward an alternative. And obviously that's why over the last year we've issued a number of publications and uh, other materials to address that uh, perspective. Let me just bring in uh, Jamal. Um, Jamal. Uh, on, the issue of, uh, the, on the issue of COVID, I mean, if we look at um, the, the statistics and look at the countries that really has uh, um, fared very badly, I mean, the United States at the top of the list, and then, you know, following this, at least in the top six or seven, you have like France and you have Britain. These are major industrial countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, their handling of COVID is really against uh, expectation. Um, I mean, is it just sheer incompetence or is it to do with fundamentally some ideological issues in those countries that has led them to actually, um, you know, deal with this issue really badly? First of all, I think I think it's exposed them, as Jamal Adeen and Abdul Wahid mentioned, because when the crisis hit, What was the first thing that we saw in the UK? We saw indecision on the part of uh, Boris Johnson in terms of whether to, you know, lock down, whether to, you know, stop flights and so on. And and they dithered for a few weeks. You know, they had a lot of data, they had a lot of information, and they they literally were dithering. Second crisis was they didn't have PPE, you know, very basic in terms of protecting your health service people, your care home workers. Uh, and thirdly, you know, who was most heavily hit was the elderly, as, as we knew, as we knew from the time of China. Um, you would expect them to protect or do particular measures to look after the elderly, but quite the opposite. You know, we had a lot of uh, people not being treated in hospitals, but being sent back negligently to care homes without even being tested. And of course, we know the results is that such a large number of people uh, in the elderly groups and the care homes in particular uh, have been those which have died. And then again, from there, it's just been one disaster after another. You know, the, the world-beating track and trace system is, is laughable. You know, the, there's a massive divergence between lateral flow tests, which is showing a tiny number of positives, versus PCR tests, which is showing a very high number of positives, you know, with a knock-on effect that, you know, people get, get a, a, maybe a false positive you know, health workers, people in the front line, so to speak, as they say in the hospitals, can't even go into the hospitals even though they're not sick. Um, you know, it, it, it is shambolic and, and uh, it's not behoven of, of any uh, civilized society. Uh, and these are the societies that we're supposed to be looking up to. And we've seen the same in France. We've seen the same in the U.S. The U.S. has the most comprehensive, the most expensive um, health care system in the world. But as you say, it's got the highest level of deaths. 
So, you know, this is not an example to lead the world. And I think, you know, the, the, the Muslim world, you know, when we go back to our very basics, you know, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said, you do not, you know, you do not travel from the area where there is a plague or major disease, and you do not travel to that area. You know, these are very basics of, of, of quarantine, which Western governments and healthcare policies also know and are also built upon, but, but they're not doing that. But equally, all of this notion of, of actually locking down society and, and taking policies which have never been seen before, it was not even in their own pandemic preparation, shows degrees of panic and, and actually actions which, which are actually exacerbating the problem because as others have reported, you know, the numbers that they call collateral, which is an awful word, you know, of people that are dying at home from heart disease and strokes and not getting their cancer care and, and on and, and depression and suicides. Um, I saw some numbers the other day, you know, from coming out of the, you know, the, the children's hospitals in the UK saying that there's five-fold increase in the numbers of child abuse and batterings that they're seeing. You know, this is happening in the, in the lower socioeconomic categories. You know, people that, you know, that they're at home, they're locked down at home and, and abusive relationships and people are losing it and children and, and, and wives and so on are, are taking this. So this is really an appalling situation, whichever way you want to look at it. Mm. I mean, Jamal Din, just to bring you back onto this, um, and probably this is probably a final sort of... Uh, concluding remark before we move on to the next session, inshallah. Um, so, I mean, often um, the debate has been um, economy versus health. That is kind of been framed in this way. And so people think, well, you know, you're really in a corner and you have not, not much uh, option. Uh, either you shut down the economy uh, in order to keep the people healthy, or you keep the economy at the expense of health of people. And this is the kind of discussion that's been there. But from an Islamic point of view, and, and again, it's a very big discussion in terms of general framework. Um, how would how would Islam um, how does Islam look at it? And and inshallah ta'ala in the in the future, an Islamic state, an Islamic khilafah state, what would be the general framework uh, in which it's not a choice between you know a health issue versus an economic issue, but both issues will be tackled. So I think uh, naturally pandemics are a, a hugely challenging situation for any uh, society, any government to go through. So there are obviously difficult choices that have to make, have to be made. Um, but in terms of the Islamic response to this, or what we would see as the policies that the state or the Khilafah would have to uh, uh, take to address this issue, I think it's some of the points we've we've already addressed. The first issue is what we saw in the early phase of this pandemic is people heard about the outbreak of this uh, new disease novel disease in in wuhan in a specific area of uh, of china and one of the first steps that people were taking was to repatriate their nationals and bring them back to other countries around the world and in many places we found that that was taking place without a strong understanding of what you're doing to bring people or move them into other territories do you know that they're bringing the virus with them and this is obviously one of the routes by which transmission took place in the in the first place um from the islamic point of view obviously we we try to uh take an approach where the prophet he said that uh 
Do not bring the sick in uh, in front of the, the 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 healthy. Yeah, do not mix the sick with the healthy. Um, so this, the the policy within the state is one of cordoning off or, or, or limiting the spread of plagues or other serious diseases. And this would have been a policy that should have been implemented here, which was to ensure that you restrict the the movement of people, stop movement out of areas where a, a disease or, or, or sickness has become widespread, so that you can ensure other areas of the society can continue to function as normal. Um, so you don't put yourself into this situation where you have a huge... Um, question of how to deal with keeping the economy going versus taking care of the sick. So I think initially the first point is ensure you implement those sort of quarantine measures, keep the disease under control, but even forget all of these questions of apps. We've had a long discussion about apps over the last year. Um, there are many diseases that have been controlled over the last few decades where test and trace and monitoring the spread of illness and, know and knowing where people are and reacting quickly has been the case for, t for decades before the development of apps or monitoring, etc. It's been by knowing the reality of the, the communities which need to be served. So I think this is something we've discussed at length in other documents. Maybe we can share links to those after the show. But uh, it's definitely something where we see a distinct and unique approach from Islam on these issues. I think we have uh, Abdul Wahid uh, back with us. Asalaamu Alaikum Abdul Wahid. Wa Alaikum Asalaamu Alaikum Wa Alaikum I'm sorry, brother. Having, I'm having connection problems today. <laughs> no worries, inshallah. Just to kind of wrap up on this topic, then now, alhamdulillah, you know, there's 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 a vac there's several vaccines, uh, which is uh, um, some of them they're being tested, some of them have been ratified. Uh, so I know you did a uh, a lengthy uh, Q and A on the vaccine, but I think in terms of some general points and advice. Uh, regarding vaccine because there is some anxiety uh, within the, not only within the Muslim community, but within the wider society regarding vaccine, given the fact that it's taken, you know, uh, such a very, you know, quick uh, amount of time to develop it, where vaccines usually take uh, years to develop. So just some, uh, you know, passing thoughts really on um, how we should view these new vaccines, uh, what should be some guidelines that we should as Muslims uh, adhere to uh, when um, looking at uh, uh, whether to take the vaccine or not? So one good way to look at it might be if we were, inshallah ta'ala, living in Khilafah during this time, uh, how would that have played out in terms of vaccines? So uh, vaccines are a form of treatment, a preventative form of treatment, and they are in general permissible in the Sharia. So they fall under the general rule of, rule of treatment, which is it's mandub to seek treatment. It's not obligatory. If somebody prefers not to take it, then alhamdulillah, that's their choice. They prefer to rely on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and be patient. That's their choice. But it's a mandub thing to seek treatment and vaccines are, fall into that ruling uh, from the individual perspective. Now, the state, from the perspective of looking after the affairs of people in a, such a situation as a pandemic, should be working very hard to find a vaccine that can help the people. And in such a situation, which is a global situation, what we've seen in the current day and age is, frankly, a total absence of global leadership in this and cooperation. There is this phenomenon they call vaccine nationalism, where different countries are trying to get to a vaccine themselves on their own without cooperating and then trying to buy up as much vaccine 
supply as they can for their own citizens at the expense of other people. And that's really not the way it should be. And Khilafah would, inshallah, be, I hope, at the forefront of the intellectual leadership in how you'd respond to a pandemic, but also with a vaccine looking to see how countries can work together and how uh, a leading state can help other countries in the world which are not so able to deliver. Uh, and, and I think what we have seen is a massive lack of trust in people about the vaccine. Why? Because to rely on the vaccine means you're relying on government, you're relying on politicians, and you're relying on big pharma to be doing right by you. And the evidence of not just the last nine months, but much, much longer, is that the governments in the West, in capitalist states, or in the crony uh, governments in the Muslim world, do not look after the affairs of people. So really, people cannot feel confident about that. And in this situation, we as Muslims look to the best expertise, the best independent expertise and assessments on these vaccines, and inshallah ta'ala look to see whether or not they are suitable and right uh, for us to take. We should not start from the viewpoint of, no, everyone should not take the vaccine, they're dangerous. We should start from the viewpoint of, it's mandub to seek treatment, and now we have to evaluate whether or not these vaccines are, to the best of our understanding, with the least amount of doubt, some things that we can uh, take as treatment safely and in a halal way. And we covered some of this in the program. If people want to look at the link on my Facebook page or uh, on the web, you'll, you'll be able to go through the arguments there, inshallah. Jazakallah there is a lot to be discussed. There's been quite a few comments regarding the vaccine. So, brothers and sisters, uh, I urge you to watch that video because that was an in-depth uh, discussion uh, with Dr. Abdul Wahid and Dr. Salman, who is a cell biologist as well, and they discussed many of the uh, questions and concerns regarding vaccine. Now, I'm, I'm conscious of time, um, so I'm going to move on swiftly to the next topic. So I'm going to ask uh, our panellists to be uh, short and sharp uh, on the answers, inshallah ta'ala, so we can get through... Uh, all the topics that we have uh, lined up tonight. So the next issue really is France uh, and um, and insulting of, of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and really all of us are aware of uh, what actually happened um, uh, regarding um, France's position towards Islam and towards Muslims. And just as a way of um, introducing uh, uh, the topic, um, recently the French minister. Um, the Gerald uh, Dermanin uh, said in the interview, uh, he said, you can pray to Allah and love the Republic, but Allah is not superior to the Republic. So this is a very inflammatory uh, statement that was made by uh, the French interior minister. Uh, and we have seen also uh, the French presidents making a you know, very inflammatory statement um, in the past uh, months, uh, stating that Islam's in crisis and so forth. So I want to ask uh, Jamal al-Din just to uh, come in. Uh, and first question, really, uh, what are the political reasons uh, for the French state, for Macron and others, taking such an offensive stance uh, against Islam and Muslims? Uh, it seems like they're setting the bar really um, low now uh, in terms of... Uh, 
uh, attacking Islam and Muslim openly and publicly. Uh, so what are the political reasons or the political drivers uh, behind this, um, this attack on Islam and Muslims? Okay, um, inshallah, I'll try and answer briefly. Um, I think there's two main ways we can look at this issue. Um, from the immediate point of view, we can see that uh, Macron is facing an election in just over, just under two years from now. So there is a clear incentive for him to start, stake a claim and make a name for himself with certain areas of policy. Um, he's facing a strong challenge from the Front National. Um, which is the kind of main far-right party in France. And he's wanting to show that he's tough on the Muslim community, you know, which has been a tactic that's been used by previous leaders in France. Um, it's something that is indicating why he's announcing policies now that will take about a year to implement. So he can use those as, as tools or bargaining chips when he goes into the election and show he's made some sort of uh, impact uh, in the uh, political scene with this issue of the Muslims. But it's a long-standing question about the situation of Muslims in France and um, what the government is demanding from them. And obviously we know that Macron said, you know, Islam everywhere is in crisis. And they're, they're doing this tactic essentially to label the Muslim community, stigmatize Muslims and, and label really all of the problems in the society on immigrants in general and Muslims in particular. Um, we know after the French financial crisis or the global financial crisis rather, Again, Sarkozy, in that, in that era, the, the French president of that time, announced a lot of restrictions and a lot of policies to do with Muslims. And again, now Macron, in the midst of this COVID crisis, in you know, historically low levels of unpopularity for his own personal standing, and people really being frustrated and, and, and fed up with the system in France. You know, we've heard of the Yellow Vest movement, massive protests taking place on a regular basis. So is really your way from a, from, from a sense to deflect from the problems and failings of the system by labeling a particular community and saying that community is the source of the problems we're facing. If that community falls in line, we'll have a much more cohesive society. And in essence, they're trying to make the Muslim community carry the can for the failures of capitalism, which are letting the whole society down. So I think that's, that's the way I would take this is that it's not just about the Muslim community, it's really about his wider failures as a politician and the wider failures of the system and essentially trying to account for all of the frustrations that you see in the French public by labelling one particular set of people. Right, it's just to I mean, follow up on that, I mean, um, you know, Charter of Republican Values um, that uh, the French state they wanted Muslims uh, to sign up uh, to this Charter of Republican Values. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'll bring maybe uh, Jamal Harwood. Jamal, in terms of, you know, getting a group of people to actually explicitly sign up to a set of values, what does that actually say about, you know, French society uh, and its ability to deal with, um, you know, uh, ethnic minorities, people who are of different religion or different color or different ethnicity? Yes, it's, it's basically it's a form of fascism, really. It's, it's effectively and it's and it's a defeatist view because they have failed to convince the wider society, in particular, you know, the Muslims, but also other parts of society that their values are correct. So rather than convince people of their so-called secular values, equality, fraternity and, and so on, freedom, they have to impose them. So, uh, uh, 
as Muslims know, la ikraf you know, there's no compulsion in the deen, meaning that we have a rule of law, you have a law of the land, uh, fair enough, and the people uh, will accept that and will follow that and will not break that law, but they don't have to believe in the basis of that law. So this is obviously why in Islamic society, in the Khilafah system, you know, we have Jews and Muslims and Christians and people of no faith. They're accepting of the rule of law, Sharia, but they're not necessarily believing in the basis of Sharia. That's why they're not Muslims, you know, the, the Jews and the Christians and so on. But in Fran France and in secular society, in Western societies, increasingly they have this problem is that the people are, are turning against that basis. They're turning against not only these vacuous leaders, but they're turning against the system itself, which is obviously not looking after them. So the notion is to say that we have to get you to abandon your values, abandon the connection that you have to your deen, to your way of life, and actually adopt our way, regardless of what that is. So it's not saying that we want you to uh, accept you know, the, the European law, it's, uh, or the French law, or the secular law, and as it affects in society, trading and buying and selling and economics and so on and so forth, it's actually we want you to believe in secularism. We want you to abandon your deen. We want you to have, you know, a so-called, uh, you know, Western vision of religion. And we see this in, in the, the vacuous way in which churches have been turned into, you know, once a week, places and, and not even that in the middle of COVID um, or once a year, you know, at, at the end of the year, they come down for a service or something like that. You know, so the religious aspect where you can believe in something, but you cannot actually practice that. And, and, and lo and behold, you cannot even advocate that in society, whether you're talking about the Muslim world or you're talking anywhere else. Exactly. Um, I'm just going to bring also Abdul Wahid into this, uh, really. So Abdul Wahid, I mean, many Muslims looking at the situation in France, and, and they're really concerned because it is really setting very worrying precedent for Muslim minorities, given the fact that in France, um, you know, the government effectively is running a secular inquisition uh, there where we have seen uh, Muslim masajids have been shut down. Uh, we have seen, you know, so-called, um, you know, Muslims having any relationship with outside Muslim world is being curtailed. Um, and, you know, we are seeing shocking stories where school children, uh, they've been investigated by police, uh, Muslim school children investigated by police because the Muslim school children they said that we are against the killing of the teacher, but we don't like our prophet being attacked. They are being monitored for their feelings, not their thoughts anymore. It's monitoring their feelings, their, their likes and dislikes. And um, the situation is, you know, is getting terrible. And what we are seeing is that there is a tacit acceptance in Europe and, you know, in the Western world um, where France is, you know, given the green light. What France is doing in, uh, um, in uh, what the French state is doing to Muslims in France is not very different to what's happened to the Muslims in China, uh, the Uyghur Muslims. But we see clear double standards. So this is very worrying uh, for a lot of Muslims who are living in in Britain and elsewhere. 
Now the question is, you know, how should Muslims uh, react and deal with this uh, worrying mm. trend? What's happening in France, which is, you know, potentially can become, you know, um, uh, uh, benchmark or standards by which other countries may follow the same in the same route, and we've seen Austria and others trying to do that. So, what's your advice in terms of how Muslims should deal with this? Well, you're right that the Muslims in France, if they look just, you know, in Austria or if they look to China or if they look to the experience of Muslims in Britain some 10 or 15 years ago with the introduction of Prevent, uh, can see the general tra tra trajectory of where things are going. And it's worth looking to see what the interior ministers of Quraysh used to say. Walid ibn al-Mughayra, Asim al-Wa'il, uh, Abu Jahl, Abu Lahab. Because the interior ministers of Quraysh used to work very hard to try and suppress the growth of Islam. And they would monitor their own sons and their own slaves to see what their thoughts and views were. And they would punish them hard if they found that they were sympathetic to the views of Islam. Locking them up sometimes, torturing them and martyring them at other times. And we know that they would sometimes offer a very similar approach to secularism about religion. Look, they'd say, keep the general political order of our society. But one year we can worship your God and one year you can worship our gods. Let's, let's have uh, a situation where even you can take some political power yourself. You could be a king, they would say to Rasulullah wasallam. But uh, we'll give you money and wealth so you can have material status in the society but give up your religion. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us in the Quran, He, Allah, who the French minister said is lower than their republic, na'udhu billah. He, Allah, He, Allah, is the one who sent uh, His messenger with uh, the guidance and the deen, the deen of truth, Islam, in order that it would prevail in our lives and in this world over all other deens, all other ways of life, even though the mushrikeen detest that. So we are in that same situation, and that has to be where we take our guidance in terms of moving forward. I don't say it's wrong for people to go and seek legitimate rights from uh, a court or a tribunal where they've been denied them in those countries. But that isn't the solution. That is not the solution. The solution that came in the time of the Messenger ﷺ was when he was given authority and a power base in Al-Madinah Al-Munawwara. And that is where the message of Islam got a, a foothold from which the Muslims were secure to practice their deen and carry this deen to the rest of the world. And that's really, there's no shortcut around that system and that way. And in the meantime, those Muslims living in those situations, we do our best to try and remain steadfast on our deen of Islam. It's not easy, but the rewards are immense in the Akhirah for that. Jazakallah khair, Abdul Wahid. So I want to move on to our next topic now, inshallah ta'ala, which is the U.S. elections and U.S. Uh, politics, really. Um, it's been a 
fascinating, interesting uh, year just observing U.S. Uh, politics and uh, especially the elections, um, given the fact that now uh, finally Trump reluctantly, even though he hasn't uh, um, officially you know, congratulated Biden on his win or anything like that, uh, now that the Electoral College has, you know, given its final votes and Joe Biden is president-elect. Um, so in the end, 306 electoral votes uh, for John uh, Joe Biden. Um, he got 51.4% of the of the votes, which is about 81 million. Uh, and Trump got 232 electoral college votes and then uh, which is uh, about 46.9 percent, nine percent of the of the votes, which is about 74 million. Now, 74 million is a huge number itself. And the first question that really comes is that um, you know, is Trumpism finished? Is it dead? Even though Trump is uh, no longer going to be in office, but the phenomena which uh, led Trump to actually come to office is that over now. So I'm going to ask uh, Jamal Harwood to kind of comment on the election and then on the phenomena around Trumpism, uh, Trumpism um, really, to start off with. Jamal. Yes, um, well, he certainly hasn't gone quietly, has he? I mean, we're talking dozens of uh, lawsuits later, uh, and he's still disputing things, you know, even though he's lost those lawsuits. And, and as you say, the Electoral College has, has clearly gone with Biden. Um, you know, what I found um, utterly amazing was that Trump, even before the election, was saying that this was a corrupt <laughs> system, basically that democracy was broken and that, you know, that the, the, it would be stolen from him, you know, which is an astounding thing for you know, the leader of a, of a country like the U.S., a suppo supposedly leading country in the world, you know, that would say that it, it basically can't even get an election right, you know, and its leader uh, had no confidence in, in the system. But I, I think in answer to your question, um, in four years' time, do you think Trump could come back? I think very, very doubtful. Um, he had his chance, and I think he was really a product of the system, uh, meaning that he saw an opportunity, he saw a window. Uh, here he was, a, you know, a, a reality TV show guy, um, a multiple bankrupt, you know, failure on so many levels, um, all sorts of moral and honesty issues and what have you in terms of his character, but saw an opportunity to play the field because of the real popular discontent in the U.S., the divisions between the wealthy and the poor, the divisions between um, you know, white and black and Hispanic, uh, the divisions between the haves and the have-nots, which are getting wider and wider by the day. And, and of course, what they call the swamp in Washington, you know, meaning the establishment you know, which tends to run things, uh, or the deep state, if you want to refer to that, as well. Again, he came with this populist platform. He was going to drain the swamp. You know, he was going to get the U.S. out of these unpopular wars, you know, bring the troops home, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on and so forth. Uh, again, and he's been a complete failure on, on virtually all of these policies, uh, you know, and he's also been a bit of a thorn in the side of the so-called establishment, but basically pandered, you know, to the same thing. So, you know, Trumpism is, is basically another side of the same coin. It's not actually uh, a, a refreshing change or anything new. 
And, you know, he's the, the representative of the Republican Party. It's, it's, it's very little different from the Democratic Party when you actually get behind it. Now, I mean, of course, the other main story, which was a shocking story, which was the death of George Floyd, the horrific death the entire world actually saw, which was captured on camera, which shows racism is uh, live and kicking uh, in America. Um, so, Jamal Din, if I just get your thoughts on that, can America ever solve its race problem? Uh, because that obviously had a global impact, not only with the Black Lives Matter, uh, but we saw the repercussion of that on other countries. We saw marches and demonstrations, even in London and other European capitals. It seems that America can't shake off its uh, demons of racism, uh, even though you know the civil rights movement uh, has been uh, uh, active you know, for the last 60, 70 years. But still, there's no real movement uh, with uh, treating human beings, uh, whatever color they may be, especially the black community, with a level of dignity which every human being deserves. Yeah, so I think one of the key issues we have to look at this, if we're asking, is this ever going to change in the US? Uh, it seems very doubtful with the way the current system works. I, I would argue that the kind of key drivers we see for the sort of police brutality, the sort of uh, discriminatory treatment we see between different communities, a lot of policies to do with the way that police are incentivized, the way that um, local governments in the US are funded, yeah, which really calls for a hostile treatment and a hostile relationship with those marginalized communities and generally that's the, the, the black community in the US. So that's been an ongoing problem, which I don't think is going to change with the new Biden administration necessarily. It's not just a Trump issue. We know the Black Lives Matter and the protests around the treatment by the police of the black community, they started under the time of President Obama. So the fact that there was a black president, the first black president in the US, didn't have a significant impact on those policies and the way that the police are incentivized. Um, essentially, that you know, you get bonuses for arrests, you get bonuses for collars, you know, collars for dollars, as it's is often termed. So in many areas, there's an incentive for the police to arrest people, whether guilty or not. It's a, there's an incentive for harassment, which is built into that idea of policing being built on a capitalist model where you have to incentivize the police to go into communities so-called disrupt crime and they start bringing people in whether they're guilty or innocent and this has been an issue which people have complained about for years so you see many problems that deal with the kind of the fundamentals of how the police force works how local governments you know charge fines to people who can't pay because they know that you'll get more fines you'll get more arrests you will actually get a cycle of more money coming in and that helps fund local government in many boroughs and, uh, and, and uh, counties in the US. So these are all endemic issues. Now, the question is, okay, these are endemic issues, but now Biden's come in on a card of dealing with these problems and dealing with the, the racism issue. Is he likely to call for radical change? I think the issue is, realistically, Biden will want to retain the support of many of those voters who were supporting Trump because they like the current situation, they do have a problem with people of different backgrounds and different uh, uh, ethnic uh, um, heritage, you know, whether it be the black community, whether it be uh, the Latino uh, community in America. So you actually see that with politicians, whether they're in the Democratic or Republican Party, 
they're going to look at what is going to get them votes in the next four years. So I strongly doubt that Biden is going to take on a huge policy of root and branch reform of the police force, because we know that the police themselves and their backers in the wider society have a huge uh, vote bank. They have an, in, an influence on the elections. And it's very, very unlikely in my eyes that Biden is going to sacrifice that. It's essentially when you choose between the politicians and the West, people always talk about lesser of the two evils. What that incentivizes politicians to do is just be a little bit less evil than the candidate you're running against. So Biden will make the promises of change, he'll make the promises of root and branch reform. But in terms of his policies, we're unlikely to see him deliver on any of that. So in my view, you will see this problem retained because essentially capitalism is a system of competition, right? It's a system of competing between different groups. And if I'm going to succeed, it probably will come at your expense. If you're going to su succeed, it's going to come at my expense. So it's not, a, it's not a model that encourages people to work between any type of groups in society. Yeah, and actually fuels this idea of suspicion of others, suspicion of outsiders, suspicion of people from, not from your background. So it's unlikely, as long as you have capitalism, that you're going to be able to end racism. All right. Um, let's me, let me ask a question to Jamal Howard. Jamal. I mean, there's been much debate and discussion in the, amongst the policymakers, politicians, analysts, about America's current international position. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion. Has the unipolar moment gone? America's no longer top dog in the international world. Especially under Trump, uh, it seems like its position has weakened considerably. Many of its traditional allies, they are very unhappy with the U.S. Uh, many of the U.S. institutions have been weakened. So there's been and the discussion regarding the, the rise of China and so forth. But there is a question now, what can we expect under a Biden's presidency on the international stage? Are we going to see more of the same? Or do you foresee that there's going to be some substantial changes with Biden? I think what we'll see is we'll see a return, a reversion to the more normal um, policies that we saw under uh, Bush and Obama, uh, a more aggressive foreign policy, a more overt foreign policy. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, Trump did nothing. I mean, he was more aggressive against China. Uh, he even started to threaten NATO, which was rather bizarre, but I think it was part economic in terms of the contributions which he was expecting from it, and he, he basically took a different view of NATO than, than previously. Uh, but again, he was a complete novice in terms of his understanding and was also ridiculed for, for lacking to take advice of his, for, uh, his you know, Secretary of State's, uh, and of course, a massive turnover of staff within the White House, and several books have been written about it, exposing his uh, inability to understand the reality internationally or in terms of effectively engage that. So, you know, we will see a re return back to more business as usual. I mean, I will say that Trump, he didn't initiate any new wars, uh, but he also failed to, to actually withdraw from the several wars which they're currently uh, fighting under. And again, we've seen the, uh, in these disastrous policies, whether that's Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria or Libya, you know, the U.S. is firmly entrenched in these areas. And I don't see anything particularly likely to change under Biden. So we will continue to see uh, an aggressive foreign policy backed up by the hegemony of the U.S. dollar 
in the coming years. I think we have Abdul Wahid back. Assalamualaikum Abdul Wahid. Are you back with us now, inshallah? No, I've been here since for a while. <laughs> okay, let me just bring you into the conversation. So Abdul Wahid, in terms of Trump's legacy for you, just a kind of a question. I mean, what do you think Trump's legacy is? Uh, will be remembered Trump, for Trump. Trump. Trump reflects the divisions in American society. I mean, it is true Biden won a record uh, vote in winning the presidency, but the second highest vote in U.S. history in in terms of a candidate goes to Donald Trump in this election. America has never been so divided, and in fact, they've got a new phenomenon. Um, typically, when a president uh, leaves office, he's silent on his successor's policies. You saw even Barack Obama only occasionally interjected on Trump's policies. Um, and uh, now you have a president who almost, an ex-president, who will almost certainly for the next four years be sniping from the sidelines and creating as much division and polarization in U.S. Uh, politics as he possibly can. Whether the Republican establishment like that or not, that is what Donald Trump is going to do. And you can see that even in the this week's debate in the uh, US budget about how much uh, the benefits they're going to be paying people who are out of work during COVID. And, uh, you know, the, the Republicans and the Democrats have in, in the House have come to some kind of agreement uh, on, I think, between six and seven hundred dollars uh, a, a, a month extra. And, and Trump has waded in saying, well, why can't these politicians give $2,000 a month extra? And I, I think you'll see more of Trump exacerbating divisions within America uh, just to, to reclaim the limelight, whether he, whether he stays in politics, whether he stands in four years, Allah knows whether his, one of his family will stand. But I think he will try and stay relevant and in, in the limelight throughout the next four years. And that's his main legacy. Uh, I think moving on to the next topic, and I think this is one regarding the Middle East peace process, which Trump probably claimed was one of his greatest achievements, given the fact that we've seen uh, UAE, Bahrain, uh, Sudan, and recently Morocco all have normalized relations uh, with the Zionist state. Uh, prior to this, um, it was Egypt and then it was uh, Jordan, uh, which had formal relations. But now we have these Muslim countries and others are also supposedly in the queue to do the same. There's been much discussion about Saudi Arabia and now there's discussion about Indonesia. Uh, other Muslim countries uh, lining up to uh, normalize relation with the occupying uh, Zionist uh, entity uh, called uh, Israel. Um, now, Jamaluddin, in terms of, you know, 2020, um, we've seen really rapid movement on this front. Um, what's really been, the, in your view, the underlying reason for such uh, aggressive diplomatic uh, uh, movements in the region to normalize with the Zionist occupiers? Well, uh, Bismillah. Uh, I, I think that there are a few key points we need to bear in mind. Um, obviously, the first issue is there's 
no clearer evidence or no clearer demonstration of the distance between the rulers of the Muslims on one hand and the Ummah itself on the other hand. Yeah, because we can see widespread um, condemnation, we can see a widespread rejection from the Muslim community, from the Muslim Ummah around the world. Yeah, so on the ground, you can see that the people. They're opposed to these, these, this idea of deals, this idea of selling out Palestine, this idea of betraying people there who we know are under bombardment, uh, blockade, who are unable to make their, meet their basic needs because of the presence of the occupation. Um, that's the sentiment of the people on the other hand. On one hand, on the other hand, the, the rulers are lining up for whatever benefits they believe they will be offered or will receive from the, the 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 U.S. as the, the the backer of the Zionist entity, or from relations with that entity itself, and I think a key element of this as well, if we look particularly at the example of UAE, is that this is a way for these rulers to actually demonstrate. They're trying to demonstrate very clearly to the Ummah that there's no way you will essentially see us yield to the demands of Islam. Um, maybe in the past, in the in, in previous decades, we saw rulers play lip service. Many rulers play lip service to nationalistic sentiments or Islamic sentiments in 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 their people, and that would be reflected in what policy stance they would announce publicly um, regarding uh, regarding the the Zionist entity and regarding the occupation of Palestine. Now we're seeing essentially these rulers are are, are casting off any of those limitations and being very clear that this entity that they've been cooperating behind the scenes with for many decades, whether it be UAE, whether it be other states in the region, now they're making those relationships open because essentially they see it as about preserving their regimes. It's not about the lands that they control. It's not about solving the issue of Palestine, but rather it's about what benefits they believe they will achieve for their, their own position in terms of cementing their hold on power. Yeah, so we've seen with many of the, the Gulf states in particular, they've cooperated with uh, the Zionists on the, the fields of intelligence because this helps them in terms of trying to maintain control and, uh, and actually monitoring their own population. These are one of the benefits they see. So it's not about a nationalistic idea. It's not about real politic or, or some idea that it's for our national interest. It's very much about preservation of their own regimes through their relationships with the Zionist entity. Abdullahid, um, in terms of um, the two-state solution, is that now dead in the water? Uh, it seems it was always dead in the water, but is that now formally a dead in the water, the fact that uh, the two-state solution was predicated on peaceful land, i.e. a Palestinian state? Um, what's the situation uh, with this um, solution at the moment? Because at the moment, all these countries bilaterally they are making these deals and normalization with the occupiers um, without making a Palestinian state a precondition. Um, how do you kind of see the two-state solution, which has been uh, on on the agenda for since uh, for decades now? Uh, Oslo and others, other accords were based on that. Uh, Abdullahid, uh, I think we're having a bit of a sound uh, problem. Um, maybe you're on mute. Right, I think we've got some uh, technical difficulty. So Jamal Dean, let me let me bring you back into the conversation and ask you the same question, really, in terms of the two-state solution. Where where is it now? 
what's this uh, situation at the moment? So, I mean, as you mentioned, this, this illusion of two-state solution is becoming more and more clear as as time progresses. Um, just to take us really quickly back to the Oslo Accords back in 1994, which was the, the, the kind of uh, precursor to the deal with Jordan, as you mentioned, and was a deal with the, the which founded the Palestinian Authority. And the idea was by having this accord, by these two sides recognizing each other, it would lead to a situation you'd have an independent Palestine with its own land and its own ability to govern itself um, by, in return, recognizing uh, the, 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 the Zionist occupiers. What has happened is that since that peace process took place, the, the pace of settlement boom actually accelerated. Yeah, the amount of land that was, was seized was far greater after the Oslo Accords than before. So the whole post process of peace has essentially been a, 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 a useful cover for the Zionists for a land grab. And now that they've really achieved that land grab, they've made so many settlements that kind of penetrate the land between the different pockets of land uh, nominally controlled by the Palestinians, there isn't really a viable prospect of an independent state, i.e. a state that controls its land, its borders. And it started off with an idea of a microstate. So really the prospect of, of, of a meaningful state emerging now um, is, is really a dead-in-the-water suggestion. But to be honest, we, we as, uh, as an Ummah, we shouldn't have been pinning our idea or pinning, pinning our hopes that somehow a peace deal would yield the recovery of Palestine. Yeah? Obviously, the West Bank is not the whole of Palestine. We see the issue of Palestine as all of historic Palestine from the, the, the river to sea, from the River Jordan to the the so th this is the issue for us. It's not about a deal which gets a few isolated set, uh, isolated patches of land, but actually about liberation, not uh, a negotiation to get recognition. Um, now, coming back to um, the issue of many Muslims will be looking at this saying, OK, what is uh, what is the Islamic solution? How should we view uh, these normalization steps? So. Uh, uh, Jamal, uh, Jamal Howard, uh, if I can get your thoughts on, you know, the Islamic viewpoint uh, regarding the issue. Now we are seeing uh, these countries and many others will be lining up to normalize uh, relations. And many Muslims may actually think, well, this is the only solution that's available. There's no other option. How should we look at this? Yes. Um Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in uh, Surah Mumtahana, verse 9, tells us categorically, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, إِنَّمَا يَنْهَاكُمُ اللَّهِ أَنَّ الَّذِينَ كَاتَلُوكُمْ فِي الدِّينِ وَأَخْرَجُوكُمْ مِنْ دِيَارَكُمْ وَظَاهَرُوا عَلَى إِكْرَاجَكُمْ أَنْ تَوَلَّوْهُمْ وَمَنْ يَتَّوَلَّهُمْ فَأُولَّائِكَ هُمُ الظَّالِمُونَ Allah forbids you with regard to those who fight you for your deen and drive you out of your homes and support others in driving you out from turning to them for friendship and protection. And those that do so are dhalims, the wrongdoers. So it's absolutely clear cut that Islam forbids notions of normalization, notions of peace agreements, notions of acceptance of occupations, whether that was Palestine, or that is Kashmir, or that is Burma, or elsewhere around the globe. 
the Ummah is suffering because we are divided and we are armies which are coming uh, to be used against Muslims and are not being used for liberation. As Jamal Adin stressed, this situation is getting worse because they are seeking peace when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded the liberation of these lands. So our objective is very simply, we must put a stop to these uh, so-called peace processes and come back to Islam, which says that we need to unify ourselves and actually fight to liberate our lands. And until we do that, we are going to see more and more strife, more and more occupation, and more and more division in the Ummah. It's as simple as that. Uh, Abdul Wahid, um, just to bring you on to this uh, discussion about Palestine, Al-Quds, I think um, it would be worthwhile getting your thoughts as to how Muslims uh, should view this, because at the moment it seems like these countries, uh, UAE, Bahrain, Sudan and others, they're all kind of justifying um, their uh, treachery, if I use that word, and with the normalization, with the Zionist uh, occupation on the basis of some sort of national interest for them. So, for example, Morocco recently um, uh, has agreed to normalize relations, uh, although they had, you know, relations in the past, but it's just making it public on the basis of the United States recognize its sovereignty over Western Sahara. Uh, again, we find countries like Sudan um, willing to do the same on the basis that has been taken off the, the list of states which is on the state United States terrorism list. So everyone seems to be acting in their so-called national interest uh, and that seems, seems the paradigm uh, for dealing with the occupation. When Muslims are looking at this, you know, how should we look at it? Should we look at it from this prism of you know, this narrow nationalism, you know, uh, of the basis for dealing with um, the, the Zionist occupation? Well, I think the ordinary Muslims, the, the Muslim masses, will not see it the same way as their rulers are trying to sell it, um, uh, because they see the gross historic injustice of the plight of the Muslims and the people in Palestine uh, and their occupation. And, and I think they'll see it as pretty cheap. But of course, in most of these countries, people don't have an opportunity to express their opinion on these things without facing severe repression. Uh, I, I think also what they can learn from this is not just how treacherous and spineless their rulers are. Uh, it is also that by cooperating with the United States in your national interest, so to speak, it effectively means you're on a hook. Um, so if you're constantly looking for recognition from the United States about whether or not this territory or that territory is, is actually rightfully yours, or if you're looking from the international community of some recognition that you are or you are not a rogue state, then you will constantly be seeking to amend your policies in line with what the international community or what the United States wants you to do. Uh, rather than being an independent state acting in what you think are your own principled interests. In the case of the Muslim world, what we hope they act on is on the basis of Islam. So I think people are going to see that more and more. 
And those people that have been kind of holding out for some kind of peaceful settlement are, are really probably, inshallah, going to wake up and realize that without a change of these rulers in the Muslim world, there will be no political will to liberate Palestine. There is no doubt that even if you just take the countries in closest proximity to Palestine, they have the overwhelming strength to be able to liberate that land. What is just lacking is the political leadership and the political will to do that. And, and really that is why our focus comes back to the, these rulers and the systems they rule under and the, the colonialism that exists still in the Muslim world and why that needs changing, why that needs abolishing and why the Khilafah needs re-establishing for this reason in Palestine. Barakallah Fiq. Uh, brothers and sisters, uh, Jazakallah Khair for uh, joining. And I've seen uh, many of you have uh, asked questions and, and, and comments. And uh, inshallah ta'ala, because uh, lack of time, uh, we're going to uh, um, wrap up uh, very shortly. Uh, but we'll try to answer some of your questions uh, in the comments uh, later on. Right. Um, so, brothers and sisters, um, we are now coming to the end of the show. Uh, we have discussed uh, uh, quite a few very important topics, and uh, I would like to just invite the panelists uh, just to give their concluding remarks in terms of their expectations, their concerns, things there which they're optimistic about. Uh, for the next year and some advice for Muslims uh, before we wrap up. So uh, let me just bring in Jamal al-Din, inshallah ta'ala. Assalamu alaikum, Jamal al-Din. Wa alaikum salam. So um, I guess in the, in, in the next year, what we're going to be seeing, um, looking at the things I was addressing in the show today, there are a lot, there's a lot of turmoil in the world stage today, a lot of issues that we see as normal witness, witnessing in the West, in, in Europe, in France, in Britain. Um, from the way that Muslim community is perceived and treated. Um, and likewise, we see lots of challenges in the Muslim world. I think it's important for us as Muslims to remain steadfast, inshallah. Um, I think the last kind of um, uh, one of the verses I wanted to mention from Surah Ali Imran is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I'll be life on the shaitan of Rajim, let Ablawunna fi amwalikum wa amfusikum, wa let us not name in a Ladina Utul Kitab, a meal publicum, women a Ladina. That um, you will be certainly tested in yourselves, in your wealth, and you will hear much that will grieve you or harm you from the uh, people who received the book before you and the, the mushrikeen. And if you are patient and you are steadfast and you fear Allah, then indeed that will be the final determinant of all affairs. So I think it's really a message of patience that the Muslims really need to be steadfast. But also it's a chance for us to carry our deen as well. We see the system of capitalism breaking down. It's time for us to really offer Islam as an alternative and be confident in putting that message through, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Brother Jamal, uh, final remarks, yeah. thoughts, concerns? Yeah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I, you know, I think the topics that you've chosen to cover, you know, summarize it very well. You know, the facade uh, of, of the face of capitalism has been exposed. You know, a tiny virus has brought these so-called great societies to their knees. You know, they couldn't deal with it. 
and uh, you know their populations are, are, are taking it in the neck, and their economies are shattered as a result of that. The only thing holding them together is, is massive money printing. You know, so the, the divisions not only within those societies, which we've seen with Trump, and, and the divisions uh, with their election, but also the divisions across Europe and with Brexit, you know, is also a manifestation of that. That they really don't have any solid basis. So, so Muslims should take heart and confidence that we actually have a, a sincere and, and clear way of life which we can present to people and provide these solutions. And the same thing in, in terms of in France, you know, as we were talking about, uh, you know, how that they are attacking Muslims because they have failed. You know, they have no solutions, so they are attacking the only true alternative. And, and the same thing in terms of the Middle East, this post, this so-called peace process is to defend their own tentative positions. It really is an opportunity for the Muslims to take a step back and say again that we are the nation of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam in kuntum hayri ummatan ukrajat al-nas, you know, we're the, the best nation brought forward for mankind. Why? Because we command maruf, we forbid munkar, and we believe in Allah. So we have the basis, but it requires us to carry this call and to take back the authority from these tyrannical regimes which are keeping us from Islam and keeping us from the liberation of our lands. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Jazakallah khair for that uh, very important message. Um, uh, Abdul Wahid, uh, in terms of, uh, firstly, uh, you know, the hijab in 2020, we had some uh, events, maybe it's worthwhile recalling some of the major events that we have and what we're kind of planning uh, in, in 2021 as well. And, and some of your thoughts uh, for, the, for the Muslims really. So I, 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 obviously in 2020, the, the focus was really on COVID and we brought out two uh, very comprehensive publications, one looking at the Islamic viewpoint on how Islam would deal with the pandemic and the other on the, the, the world after COVID. Uh, and and we, we culminated in a conference at the end of October on highlighting the fall of capitalism and the rise of Islam as an alternative for humanity uh, in this in this time, much needed alternative in this time. Uh, I think we're going to see more problems next year. The, the economic aftermath of COVID really hasn't bitten yet. Uh, that hardship will bite more next year. And where there is economic problems, you will see governments in the West doing what Macron has already done in France and focusing the attention elsewhere and most likely on the Muslim community. And that fits into a wider global strategy against Islam, demonizing Islam because of the, uh, the, the, the threat they feel from ideological Islam offering that alternative. Next year, uh, in, in February and March, the month of Rajab, it is the 100th Hijri anniversary of the destruction of the Khilafah. Uh, so imagine that, 100 years without this obligatory institution in Islam through which unity is achieved, through which the Sharia is implemented, through which the message of Islam is carried to the world, through which is a shield for the Ummah and the Muslims against attack. Um, and 100 years, Hijri years has passed. Uh, and we, Hizmet Tahrir, across the world, 
uh, and we in the UK as well, will definitely be having a focus on this. And we would really request all Muslims to use this opportunity of this anniversary to highlight this call and the necessity of this call and work with us uh, uh, for the resumption of Islam as a complete way of life under the shade of the Khilafah. Inshallah. Jazakallah khair, brothers, uh, for your contributions and to our listeners for uh, joining in uh, and sharing your comments uh, and your questions. The questions that we didn't get to answer, inshallah ta'ala, we'll try to answer them. And just to conclude on that note, uh, that uh, we as Muslims, wherever we are, the challenge of our time is to re-establish Islam. Many of the problems that we discussed uh, on the show today, it requires the implementation of Islam as a complete way of life. And this is not easy. It is difficult uh, uh, and it's very testing. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us uh, the reality of this life and the difficulties in establishing Islam that we'll have to endure much before the victory of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is granted. He subhanahu wa ta'ala says a'udhu billahi min ash-shaytani rajim am hasibtum an tadkhulu al-janna wa lamma ya'tikum mathalu alladhina khalaw min qablikum massatuhum al-ba'sa'u wad-dara'u wa zulzilu hatta yaqula ar-rasul walladhina amanu ma'ahu mata nasrullah ala inna nasrallahi qareeb do you think that you will be admitted into jannah without being tested like those before you they were afflicted with suffering and adversity and were so violently shaken that even the messenger and the believers with him cried out, Mata Nasrullah, when will the help, the victory of Allah come? Allah inna Nasrullahi Kareeb. Indeed, Allah's help is always near. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, in these very difficult and trying circumstances to give us the patience, to give us the sabr, to give us the determination to work, to re-establish his deen by re-establishing the Khilafah so that the justice and the mercy of Islam can once again be established in this world. With that, brothers and sisters, uh, I say to you, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu and thank my panel uh, for giving their valuable time and insight and also assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah thank you for listening to this podcast podcasts on current events islamic guidance quran tafsir and sirah are available at islampodcasts.com as well as on itunes rate review and comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community please subscribe share and tell a friend about islampodcasts.com